wanted me to preach, but I, I, I sat there in front of my computer a couple different times yesterday, and uh, I probably spent maybe a total of two or three hours in front on it, working on it, and then this morning I woke up, and I got downstairs, and I hit delete key, and I got rid of everything, and I started all over again. No, I did it on purpose, um, because it just was, you know, you just know when, when it's forced, and uh, I just knew that what I had prepared up to that point just wasn't what the Lord would have me preach, so... You know, sometimes you just got to, well, always, you just got to be open to what he'd have you to do. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him, with his children, it did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, he spared to take the life of his own flock, and of his own herd, to dress the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb, and dressed it for the man that was come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over Israel, and I have delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to, the, to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, has taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've given and you've put in our hands so abundantly. I just pray, Lord, you just get me out of the way now. Speak through me, Lord. I just pray that something said and done here tonight would just be a help and an encouragement, Lord, maybe even an admonishment if needed, Lord. But above all, I just ask that your will would be accomplished. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So May 11th, 1996, Value Jet. Flight number 592 took off at 2.04 p.m. Nine minutes later, 2.13 p.m., it crashed. Killed all 110 people on board, flight members, uh, passengers, everybody. You say, well, what caused this? Well, a fire ultimately is what caused it. But before that fire took place, there were some things that had to happen. But before I get ahead of myself, the fire was caused by uh, 144 oxygen generators. Now, oxygen generators are little devices they put in the overhead bins, and, and that's what's used if they have to uh, deploy the masks and you need oxygen during your flight. It's kind of like a, you pull, the, you pull the mask, you pull the pin, and it's kind of like a grenade. It activates it, creates this chemical, uh, chemical reaction, and it generates, does what it says, it generates oxygen, breathable oxygen. Well, if these things aren't handled properly, they can be very dangerous. So they had 144 of these things. They wrapped them in bubble wrap. Some they wrapped in paper. Some they didn't wrap them all. They just tossed them in a box. They marked them empty. All of them weren't empty. They had green unserviceable tags on them. They weren't all unserviceable. They were unserviceable and then they were not fit to be installed in the aircraft, but they were still serviceable in the sense that they were very volatile and, and very much could be activated at any time. These pins that I mentioned, they were very, uh, they could come out very easily because 
they're there in case of an emergency. You have to be able to yank on that thing, pull the pin, and get the oxygen that you need. So they really not secured all that well. A lot of them, they were found, they were wrapped with masking tape or scotch tape. Uh, some of them, they just bent the ends over. So ultimately, what it, what it boiled down to is there was contract maintenance that was done on this aircraft. There was a supervisor and two technicians, and they broke just about every procedure you could possibly imagine. They, they mishandled them. They mislabeled them. They didn't uh, uh, properly discharge them. They didn't properly pack them. They didn't do anything right. They shoved them in the... The, uh, the cargo bin, the, the bag bin as we call it. So on takeoff, it didn't take much to jostle one of these things loose. Once it started generating the heat from the chemical reaction, it started activating the others. They said one of these alone can generate heat up to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. When you got a box of 144 of them, you can get a lot of heat. Burned through control cables, burned through the wiring. Didn't take long for that airplane to go down. Uh, they didn't have the ability to bring it back around and land it. He lost control of it. Went to the right, went in the ground. So you say, what, what is all this about? Well, it kind of caused a shockwave throughout the industry, especially among us technicians. Um, through A&P school, we always heard that we could be hold, held liable for our actions, and even, even in a court of law. But up until this point, it never really happened. It's very hard to prove uh, uh, mechanical negligence on, on behalf of you know, one or two mechanics. They, they find mechanic error and they find human error all the time, but to pin it to, to the degree where you can actually convict somebody is very difficult. Well, these three men went to trial. Two of them were acquitted. The third one, however, well, he's still at large today. He never showed up, and they still have a warrant out for this guy. Now, this was 1996, so all these years he's been running, okay? If he'd have just showed up, he'd have been a free man a long time ago. But I said all that as an illustration to show how our actions have results. The things that we do, okay, they all, there's always a result associated. Even though these men were acquitted of their, their crimes, they, they basically were held for uh, negligence. They, they were accused of falsifying documentation uh, and, uh, and a few things like that. Uh, not manslaughter, nothing like that. Uh, but basically breaking the, the very basics of aircraft maintenance, breaking those laws to the point where it caused death. Even though they were acquitted of those charges, it didn't bring back the 110 people that were on board. The families of those 110 people were still affected. The families of those three technicians were affected. So their actions had a very far-reaching effect. It reflected in the lives of all of those that were uh, uh, associated with this uh, crash. And then at the end of the thing, there, there was a sense of remorse uh, on, on pretty much everyone's part. But we're going to start with the result. So we, we read through here, verses 1 through 9. And we see here that David himself, had, in verse 5, he said, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, that man that done this thing shall surely die. And, and as you read down through the chapter, you'll find out that the Lord was on his side. He said, yeah, you should die. But then, down there in verse uh, 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord hath also put away, also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. So he got a stay of execution. God said, okay, I'm not going to kill you. You're still going to die, but you're not, I'm not going to kill you because of this. But yet the consequences of his actions still remained. So, as I said, sin always has 
a consequence. There's always something to be dealt with. Uh, when, I was, when I was a sheet metal mechanic, we'd get an airplane in for heavy check, and it would have all these little pock marks all over it. And what they were was lightning strikes. Air, uh, lightning would hit the aircraft, it would be discharged through static dischargers placed all over the uh, wings and trailing edges and whatnot. But it would still leave a little area of damage. For just, just for an instant, it would superheat that metal and it would, it would melt it and it would displace it. So think about if you take a backhoe out and you dig a hole in the ground, the dirt that comes out of that hole goes somewhere. Usually it goes off to the side or you know wherever. So there's, there's a hole and then there's the displaced dirt. That's kind of what a lightning strike looks like, but just very small. Maybe an eighth of an inch, a sixteenth. It's a very small uh, area. But nonetheless, it's damage. It's a concentration point for, for stress, for cracks. So you, have to, you still have to deal with it. So I would get in there, and, and knocking the high part off was easy. You'd just get your grinder out, you'd knock that off. That metal would come off easy. But the divot still remained. Well, you can't just grind in it. You can't just dig in at an angle. You have to smooth it out. See, So an area, you know, maybe an eighth of an inch would now turn into maybe, depending on the depth of it, it might turn into an inch, maybe an inch and a half of area that you kind of had to smooth out in all directions and blend that thing out, make it nice and smooth. Well, the thing is, whatever, even though it started out very small, it required a much larger area to repair. So what started out barely noticeable, now all of a sudden was much more noticeable. See, something that was there before had to be removed. Before that lightning hit it, there was just a, a normal aircraft skin. But once the lightning discharged and it hit it, now all of a sudden to repair it, you had to take something away that once was there. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, forgiveness is granted, but yet the consequences still remain. Now, as I would remove that damage from that, that, that lightning strike, the evidence still remained. Sometimes it was bad enough where I had to cut it out and put in a filler and put in an external doubler and do a full-blown repair. Other times I could just get away with a blowout or a blend out depending on how bad the damage was. But regardless, there was evidence that something was needed to make this thing right again. Something had to be done to that area to clean it up. And that's what sin does in our lives. Um, there's always evidence of something that we have done that, that even though we might uh, have been forgiven, even though we've moved beyond that thing, there's still evidence of, of sin sometimes, uh, and it, it leaves marks. Um, for David, the result of his sin with Bathsheba cost him the lives of four of his own children, his own lambs. See, he had the, the, those four lambs that had to be restored came from David. Now, three of them, David saw their sins magnified in their lives and their actions and their deeds. Uh, the first one, the baby, well, he didn't live very long. Um, so we have the, the result. Now, let's look at the reflection. Now, I'm not talking about a moment of reflection where you, talk, you stop and, and you think about things and you ponder. That's not the reflection I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reflection when you look at something and you see yourself. Okay? You look in a mirror and you see a reflection of yourself. You look in someone's life that you have had an effect on and you see either positive or negative reflection of yourself. Of course, you know, parents, we always want to have a positive reflection. But I also, as much as I like to, to you know, I'll joke around with Robin and I'll say all the good things they get from me, all the bad stuff they get from you. Well, as much as I would like to believe that, if I'm being honest with myself and anybody else, that's not always the case. I can see some of my bad traits and some of the things that I do wrong uh, reflected in my kids. Um, there's, there's, there's just a lot of similarities there. 
as well as, as some of the, the, the one or two good traits that I may exhibit every 15 years or so. Um, but we see these things, they come back at us. And it's kind of like what you see is what you get. You know, it's, it's one of those deals. Um, the sons that David uh, beheld in their lives were a constant reminder to him. So as he's watching these boys live their lives and he's watching the things that are going on and he, he's, he's hearing the things and he's seeing the things and, and he's part of those things and we'll get into what those things are here in a little bit. It's just a constant reminder to him of that day when he himself judged that four lambs you know, should be repaid fourfold. As time passed and the passing of every son, he remembered their names. I think of of Jacob when he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord. He said, what is your name? He said, it's Jacob. He had to come to the realization. He had to, he had to realize who he was in the eyes of the Lord. He had to say his own name to realize that he was a, a, a supplanter. He was a usurper. He was a trickster. He was somebody that was not always above board and on the up and up. Okay? He was someone that, that, that took advantage of situations and people. And he had, to, he had to come to that realization on his own, and it took the Lord asking him, what is your name? And then that night, he gave him a new name. He gave him the name of Israel. But I think through this, I can't help but wonder if David, when he looked at his sons, that he gave them new names as well. And we're going to start with the child. Not given a name in the Bible, but I think David, he had a name for him, a real name, but I, th I think that he also had a number, another name when he looked at him. And I think when he looked at him, the name Stumbling Block came to mind. The child wasn't a stumbling block, but David was. See, for in verse 14, the Lord said, um, Howbeit because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child that all, thou, uh, also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So he gave, he gave great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme because of his actions with Bathsheba. And this child is an offspring. So let me ask you, what have you done that can be a stumbling block to, to those around you? Now, this is something I've mentioned before, and you'll, you'll probably get, you know, I'll probably say it again because it's important to me, and I think it, it's something that I'm aware of. I don't want to be a stumbling block. Okay, I don't want to be a stumbling block to my wife. Uh, I fear that sometimes I probably have done and said some things that have, have maybe uh, uh, made her miss a step or lose a step or hold her back. I don't want that. I don't, I don't look fondly upon those memories. But I'd be lying to you if I, think, if I could sit here and tell you I don't think I've done some things over the years. My kids, I don't, I don't want to provoke them to wrath. But I'd be lying to you if I said, well, I probably, you know, at some point in life haven't done that on one or two occasions. Um, it's not something I'm prideful of or, you know, that I want to admit. But I know me. And I know who I am. And I know how some things I can overreact to or whatever the case may be. But you got to stop and think about who, you, who are you influencing? Who are you being a stumbling block to? I certainly don't want to be a stumbling block to any one of you. Okay, I'm up here. I don't take this thing lightly. I put a lot, a lot of hours into this. A lot, I said I put, you know, whatever, two, three hours in it yesterday. And this morning I got up and I had no problem hitting the delete key and wiping it all out. Why is that? Because I knew that's not what God wanted me to preach. I could get up here and I could say the words, but if God's not behind it, then what good is it? So I knew that I had to start over. Say, well, what was the time yesterday? It was an experience. It was a learning experience. That's all. It wasn't a waste. How can it be a waste if you're spending time, God, spending time in God's word and you're spending time in prayer? That's not a waste of time. 
Um, have you kept others from coming to Christ? I know that's probably a little difficult. You're probably, you know, you're thinking, oh, no, I'm trying to get them to come to Christ. Well, think about it. Maybe when you're early days and you're a young Christian, maybe you're a little overzealous. Maybe you got a little, little over-anxious at times. Uh, maybe sometimes in your words and your actions. I know uh, when, I, when I first hired on with the airline I used to work at, I worked with two guys in my paint department. They claimed to be Christians. They claimed to be saved. And I watched these two. And at the end of the day, I finally determined that if that's the way you guys act, I'm just as good and I'm just as saved as either of you two. Because your actions, you know, yeah, they could, they could talk a good game. But see, for me, where the rubber hit the road was when I watched them. You say, well, what did they do? Well, one guy would work on company time fixing up his toolbox and fixing up car parts and fixing up whatever, and then he'd turn around and sell them. You see, he used company time to do that. He used company materials to do that. You say, well, what's that's, that's called stealing, in case you're not aware. The other guy would go to the flea market and buy this stuff dirt cheap, and then he'd come and he'd tell people, well, this, this, is, an unmar- this, is, this is a division of, his big thing was spray guns. And... Uh, if any of you are familiar with Snap-on Tools, they have a division called uh, Blue Point, which is kind of like a lesser, you know, Chevy as opposed to GMC kind of thing. You know, it's, it's a little lower end. It's still Snap-on, still has a good warranty and all that, but it's just a little lesser quality tool. Well, he, he would come and he'd say, well, this, this tool here is, a, is an unmarked DeVilbus or an unmarked Binks uh, uh, spray gun. No, it wasn't. It was a made-in-China $15 cheapie, you got the flea market, now you're bringing it here and you're lying to people and you're marking the price up to $30, $40. And I called him out on it. He said, well, you know, I'm just making a couple bucks. See, he justified what he was doing. I confronted him with it. So through their actions, I, I, I basically, they were a stumbling block to me coming to Jesus Christ. I said, I don't want nothing to do. If that's the God you serve, I don't need him. Because of your actions, if that's what he's teaching you to do, then I don't need it. As far as I know, those guys are still around. Uh, the one, I'm not sure what happened to. The other one, he hasn't changed. He still does what he thinks is right, and it's, it's not right compared to this book. And he still justifies his, his misactions. He hasn't changed. And that was almost, that was 30, 31 years ago. 1992. That's a really long time ago. Some of you weren't even alive back then. That's how long ago that was. Um, so have you kept others from coming to church? It kind of goes along sort of with the other. Uh, maybe they're saved people, though. Maybe they look at you and they say, man, you're, you're just an absolute nut burger. And if your whole church is full of you, I don't want no part of that. Um, have you caused others to follow you in sin? You know, liberty, we have the liberty to do whatever we want. You can't lose our salvation. But that does not equate to expediency. Just because you have the ability to do it doesn't mean you should. Have you ever created loopholes for which others justify their sins? Maybe you've done some things and you've justified it so much and you've created situations where it was okay for you to do that. And then others learn from your example. So then they too follow in those same sins or similar sins because they, they're going to do what they want to do. And then they just learn by your example. Oh, we'll just, you know, he made a good loophole. I'll make a loophole. What? Hey, it works for him. It's got to be good for everybody, right? See, David attempted to get Uriah involved in, in, in his situation with Bathsheba in, in, in an attempt to cover up his sin. And what David didn't count on was Uriah 
was more honorable at that point than David was. The Bible says David got him drunk. And I thought it was curious that Uriah, all drunked up and all liquored up, made better decisions than David did, sober and straight of mind. See, he was more honorable and he knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. David was scared. David was making poor decisions because he was trying to cover up his sin. So I ask you again, have you, like David, given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme? Secondly, let's move on to the next lamb, Amnon. I think when David looked at him, I think the name that, he, that came to his mind was Lust. Now, we're not going to turn there, but if you're keeping notes and you want to write it down, you can read more about him in 2 Samuel chapter 13. But just as David had lusted after someone that was not his wife, someone that was off limits, so did Amnon his son. See, David's lustful eyes and fleshly desires were magnified in the life of Amnon. That's that's often the case. The things that we do, you've heard Brother Joe say it a lot of times, um, uh, I forget what he says. I know what he says, but I just can't quote it because that's what happens when I try and quote on the spot. Um, it'll come to me. I think I had it written down. But bottom line is the things that we do in moderation, they do it in excess. There we go. That's it, more or less. Um, and that's what happened here. You know, uh, uh, What David did, now it wasn't right, and I don't even know if I'd call it moderation, but it was a single solitary event, but it led to Amnon... He, he, all of a sudden, it was something that he dwelled on he, and he pursued, and he went to great lengths to, to uh, uh, accomplish his desires. Uh, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail for time's sake, but like I said, it's in 2 Samuel 13 if you want to read more into that. Many of you already know what it is. But David pursued another married woman, and Amnon pursued his sister. Um, so lust, you know, we're talking about lust. It can come in many forms and fashions. Um, and it doesn't always have to pertain to a man or a woman. You know, a lot of times we associate that with, with the opposite uh, gender, but that's not always necessarily the case. You can lust after things. Uh, maybe others see it in your life. Maybe they don't. Um, you can lust after a career. Now, maybe, maybe there are some that have forsaken their church for a career. I'm talking to the Sunday night crowd. That's probably not the case with y'all. What do they say? Uh, Sunday morning, people come for the, the people. Uh, Sunday evening, they come for the pastor. And Wednesday night, they come for the Lord. So basically, they're saying, you know, the further you get away from Sunday morning, the more they're actually trying to do something for the Lord. They want to do it on Sunday morning because that's when the world expects you to go to church. So they want to make a grand showing, and they want to, uh, uh, you know, show everybody how spiritual they are. But then they don't come back Sunday night or, or Wednesday. But if this thing goes out there, and it's on the interwebs, and it's on the YouTube and all that, and at some point, somebody's watching this. Maybe you, watching it, maybe you have, have, have forsaken your church for, your, for a lust of your career. Maybe you're pursuing your career over, over fellowship with other believers. Maybe you're pursuing your career over serving the Lord and sitting in church, submitting to the authority of a pastor, and doing what the Lord would have you to do. Maybe you, don't, you can't go Wednesday nights or Sunday nights because... You have golf outings to go to or maybe after work dinner parties to try and wine and dine some clients or, or whatever the case may be. Maybe you're working extra hours just because you want to prove that you're the man uh, and you'll be there when the company needs you. I don't know, whatever the case may be, 
you get the point. Um, you can lust after a career, and it, it can take forefront in your life. Uh, you can lust after a power position. Uh, it can be within your workplace, which is probably the most common, but it can also be within the church itself. Um, it might even be in the Moose Lodge. I don't know, but there, there is a point which you're going to start lusting after things where you could lust after power, and what is associated with that is you're going to step on the backs of others, and you're going to stomp all over them to get what you want, to get that position that you want. There are some people that just, they cannot follow. They have to lead. Not that they're good at it, and not because they should be doing it, but because they have no ability to follow others, because they think more highly of themselves than they should. They're too good to follow, and they're too good for the grunt work. You know, an army is composed mostly of enlisted men. There's officers, but many fewer officers than there are enlisted. Okay, so you need the grunts. You need the people just to go out there and do the work that needs to be done. And if God hasn't called you to a position of leadership, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the, the, your workplace, or heaven forbid you're in the Moose Lodge, but if God hasn't called you to a position of power, then you probably shouldn't be seeking it because you're not seeking it for the right reasons. You're one of those guys that, uh, that know where to be found when the work is done. I used to, when I was still a cleaner before I, I got hired on as a, as a sheet metal mechanic, um, now I'm going to ask you to forgive me for what I'm going to say here in a few minutes. Uh, I have to remember I was a different guy back then. But there was this acting, he was an acting lead. On weekends, he would take on the role of a lead, uh, lead technician or a lead cleaner, and he would basically assign the jobs. Well, he wanted to be a real lead. He wanted that promotion. And his idea of getting it, you would think, well, maybe he just worked harder and, and really had an upstanding, you know, uh, uh, way he went about his work and just, no, no, that's the way a lot of people do, but not this guy. His idea of getting promoted was as I said earlier, stepping on the backs of those that he thought were under him. So after we would mod an aircraft, we would take it, we would change it from a passenger configuration to a cargo carrying configuration, and that required, it took us like 60 days to do this whole process. Well, then we would paint it, we'd paint the exterior, give it back to the technicians, the, the sheet metal guys would go in, finish up the interior, everything would be done, and then we would get back and we would go in and we would finish marking and stenciling and doing all the, the upper cargo markings, and we would paint the floors. We would prime them, we would roll them with uh, gray paint, we would put the anti-skid, the whole nine yards. I mean, this thing looked like it just rolled off of, of McDonnell Douglas assembly line when, when they were done with it. Well, we were getting ready to roll the floors. It was a Sunday or a Saturday, it was a weekend. We're getting ready to paint the floors, and he tells me, go, ahead, go up there and finish all the stenciling on the wings, both wings, okay. So I went up there and I started, you know, finishing the stenciling. Well, then he comes up and he started Ride my case, you know, hurry up. And you go, I'm, like, I'm going as fast as I can. You know, there's a lot of placards to be installed. They have to be installed in the right place. You don't just put them wherever. They have to, you know, we have a manual. They have to go in a certain direction, orientation, certain location, all this. And I told him, I said, well, you know, maybe if you would help me rather than just standing there, you know, busting my chops, maybe you would, uh, uh, maybe we'd get this done a little bit quicker. Well, no, no, he wasn't going to do that. And he, he so much as told me. And then he would proceed on to tell me that he was going to close the overwing emergency exits and pull the ladders away off the wings, trapping me on the wing. <clears throat> this is the part I may need a little forgiveness for. So at that time, I don't remember exactly what was said, because like I said, this is about 30, 31 years ago. 
But at that time, I informed him that he would do neither, um, that I would not any problem take the emergency exit wings out, and I would walk across his freshly painted floor, and I might or might not inflict bodily injury on him. <laughs> I was a different guy back then, okay? Um, but here's the thing. He wanted to gain something through the wrong means. He wanted a, a position of power because he wanted others to make him look good rather than just going out and taking care of himself and, and making himself look good. Well, through the years, I didn't always agree with the people they appointed to leadership and, and management positions, but I'll give him credit. That guy never got a lead job. So uh, he never earned it. He didn't do it the right way. And unfortunately, the people that made those decisions were wise enough to see that. Um, but we got to be careful with that. You can lust after the wrong things, and it can cause a lot of problems in a lot of areas in your life. Of course, lusting after a, a, you know, a man or a woman that's not your spouse is, is certainly uh, the wrong thing. Even if you're not married, you know, you're lusting after someone, that can certainly lead to the... Um, we were talking about... Ben and Faith came over and we were talking about dating. There's a right way of, of courting, dating, however you want to call it, and there's obviously a wrong way. You know, you, and... and uh, well, that's not what this is about right now, but I mean, there's a lot to that. But if you don't know what the right way is, uh, I encourage you to talk to some of these younger married couples and, and, and some of these uh, others that, you know, are, are going about it the right way. Um, the main thing you want to keep in mind there is, is uh, abstain from the appearance of evil. You know, don't be caught in the position where, you know, it can be questioned what, what you were doing and your intent. Um, and I think that's just good, generally speaking, throughout life. Um, let's move on to the third lamb here, Absalom. Now, he can be read about in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, I think when David looked upon him, he called him pride. So just as Satan, we read about Satan in Isaiah 14, Absalom tried to usurp the king. He tried to insert himself between man and the king, just as Satan wanted to to rise above God. He exalted himself above the Lord. He, he, he wanted to overthrow God. That's what we said. I, don't, I think he, uh, he knew it couldn't happen, but I think his pride uh, got in the way there. And um, same with Absalom. His, his pride got a hold of him. Uh, he got away scot-free after he, he murdered his brother, uh, Amnon. Nothing happened to him. He ran away for a little bit, and he got back, and, and uh, he moved back into Jerusalem. And I, I think that all led up to, I think because David wasn't decisive there and did what he should have done. Granted, what Amnon did was wrong, but the way Absalom went about it wasn't correct either. And David never really intervened. He never did anything about it. Um, but we can see that pride can be a pretty tough beast to tame. See, because it knows no boundaries. Pride can, it, it'll go, it, the more you continue to feed it, the higher it'll, it'll, it'll climb. The more it'll grow. Uh, it can be attributed to a lot of different things. It can be attributed to looks, uh, intelligence, talent, money, possessions, uh, title, uh, a desire to be in control, as we talked about lusting, a uh, desire to be right all the time. That's a big one, especially for guys. You, know, you always want to be right. Even when you admit you're wrong, you never want to admit you're wrong. You still, have, you still do it in a way that you're like, well, I could possibly be wrong, but not likely. I'm still right. So even though I'm wrong. I'm still right. So that's just, that's, that's a prideful nature. And it's part of us, and it's not right, and it's something you got to be aware of, and it's something that you have to, to keep down. It's part of that old man that you got to keep down. 
uh, prideful, or people often get prideful about things which they have little or no control over anyway. Um, I'll say it. I'm a good-looking man. But see, I didn't really have anything. Okay, I'm joking. What I was going to say, I didn't really have anything to do. I didn't make me. Okay. Now, I know. I'm ugly. I, that was a joke. Lighten up. Okay, I'm just making a silly point there. But the thing is, a lot of people, they will get prideful about their looks. They'll get prideful about certain aspects of them. It's like, look, you really didn't create you. Yeah, you may trim your hair and you may shave your face and you may, you know, do whatever. But at the end of the day, God created you. He gave you the looks that you have. So why are you prideful about something you had very little to do with anyway? But that's where people are. Um, in the Bible, pride is mentioned 49 times over 46 verses, and it's always in a negative context. Uh, it's, where it's used with words and phrases like uh, naughtiness, man, evil men, children of, uh, foolish, foolishness, drunkards, a deceptive heart, condemnation of the devil, and many more. The list goes on. That was just a few of the, the really big ones. Um, but pride's never been a good thing. Now, I know a lot of times we'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my son or I'm proud of my daughter. Uh, I've said that. Um, but you've got to look at the way you, you say that thing. There, there's, there's, and I'm not, this is a, uh, an area here that you know, has to be tread lightly, but I, I think you can have pride in something when you know that the Lord has, has moved them and has pushed them in the right direction. Okay, I can look at Ben and Faith and say I'm proud of them as a young couple. I had a little bit to do with that, but ultimately it was the Lord. Okay, it was him. Um, it was him that guided their paths and their minds. He knew their thoughts all the time. I didn't. Okay. So I can see I'm proud of the way that they've, they've progressed. I'm proud of the way they turned out but I'm not taking any kind of sense of accomplishment for that. I'm not taking any credit for that because I know it wasn't me. And I know it wasn't them. It was just the Lord working in their lives. And the same thing for, for uh, others. Um, pride will grab a hold of you and it only grows stronger. You will willfully defend bad choices and decisions because of pride. Like I said earlier, you know you're wrong, but you're still going to defend it and, and, and try and prove to everyone, including yourself, how right you really are. Uh, pride will keep you from repentance. That's the big one. Pride will get in the way between you and God and keep you from coming to him in, 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 that, uh, in an attitude of repentance. And moving on here, we're going to talk about Adonijah. pastor asked me to keep it short um, so we can do the meeting afterwards. So I'm kind of reading from the script a little more than I normally do, but I just want to try and get all this in there, but in a timely manner. So Adonijah. Uh, you can read about him over in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. Uh, and I, I think his name would be Greed. Uh, like his father David, he wanted something that was not rightfully his either. Through back doors and channels, he schemed and plotted to get the throne. He knew the throne was going to go to his brother, Solomon. But he, he used methods and, and, and orchestrated some things to get it by himself. Manipulated people, pulled some strings, got some help, listened to bad advice all to get the throne that wasn't his. He was driven by something he felt he should have, and he accomplished it by whatever means he thought necessary. Greed can be driven by envy and jealousy. Usually it is. It's always, you know, you're always wanting what others have, and you're always afraid of others taking away the, the, what you have because you, you deem them a threat. You think, well, they're going to take away something that I have, that I have earned. So you become jealous of them. So i got to ask you, how much is too much? 
You said, of what? Of anything, whatever it is, whether it's power, whether it's money, whether it's stuff, whether it's possessions. Where, where do you draw the line? Because here's the thing. Donald Trump, uh, Bill Gates, any of those multi-billionaires, they didn't get to where they're at by stopping at $5 or $1,000 or a $1 million. See, they always had to pursue the next dollar. Well, at which point is the next dollar too much? Whatever it is in your life, at which point is the next whatever it is too much? When, where's the finish line? I think greedy people, I, they're never content. They live a very uh, miserable life because they never arrive. They never get to where they want to go because they're always putting that goal line. They're always putting that finish line further out there. They can never achieve it. You can never finish the race if you never cross the finish line because you keep pushing the finish line out there. So they're miserable because they never have a sense of accomplishment because they never can fully achieve their goals. They're always chasing, chasing that dream. They're always trying to get to a pinnacle that just keeps growing higher and higher. It's never obtainable. And then we see here, we had the, the, the results, we had the reflections, we saw what was, was, was manifested uh, in the lives of his sons through his actions, and now we have the remorse. See, the pain lives on. The pain from sin, it, it doesn't go away quickly, and it doesn't always go away easily. Sometimes it lingers for a real long time, even after you've been forgiven. Okay, sometimes we keep that pain alive ourselves, which is, is wrong. It's sin in and of itself. But sometimes just the effects of the sin will linger on. That pain, sometimes it takes a long time for it to go away. His son's actions, they were a constant and painful reminder. When he saw them growing up, when he saw them living their lives, when he saw them misstep, when he saw them fall, when he saw them do stuff that he knew that they shouldn't be doing, it was a constant reminder of that night with Bathsheba. After the death of the child, David praised God. But up to that point, the baby was a constant reminder. He finally got to the point after the baby died, he said, look, there's nothing more I can do. So I can't bring the baby back to me, but I know I'm going to go to him. See, through sin, through the pain, you still have a promise. David had that promise, and he overcame that thing because he had a promise that he knew that he would go to that baby someday. Um, David mourned the death of Amnon. At first, he was told Absalom had killed all his sons. Then he came to find out that that wasn't true at all, that he'd only killed Amnon. Now, while what Amnon did with his sister was, was I mean, terrible, it was sinful, there's no way it can be justified, uh, what Absalom did wasn't any better. Uh, it was still sin in and of itself. Uh, it should have been handled the right way. Um, David's sin manifested itself in the life of Amnon. The lust he experienced for Bathsheba was quickened in the life of Amnon. David mourned the death of Absalom in spite of all Absalom had done. I mean, that, he tried to kill David. He drove him out of the city. He fled from him, but he still mourned his death. He could trace his sinful back, uh, behavior back to David's night with Bathsheba. David, he died before the fourth and final lamb, Adonijah. But I think at his deathbed, he knew that there was still one more lamb that had to go. One more lamb that had to die. He knew because there was only three up to that point. He knew the fourth lamb had to be paid. So this remorse we've talked about, it wasn't only over the death of his sons, but it was the fact that their lives were demanded because of his sins. See, that, 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 that those four lambs had to be paid. They had to be offered up. And it was because of his sin, because of what he did. That had to be carried out in his life.
And although he watched them grow and all he, he watched them live their lives and he saw everything that went on with them, he knew that someday their actions would lead to their death because of what he had done. So in conclusion, I'm going to wrap it up here real quick. All these sins and characteristics, everything we've talked about, they're all self-serving. They're all narcissistic. You say, why is everyone against social media? Because that thing just turns it right back on you. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Okay, that's what all it's about. That's all social media is about. Um, it, it's, it's about people showing off what they've done, where they've been. Uh, I've used the illustration before. You know, somebody goes to the you know, Grand Canyon, they take a picture of themselves. You're like, man, get out of the way. I want to see the hole in the ground. I don't want to see you. You're ugly. I can see you anytime. I'll probably never get to see the Grand Canyon. I want to see that. Um, but David, by his own words, had to pay back fourfold that which he took. Okay, he, he, he pronounced judgment there in verse 6. He said, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. And he also said, the man shall die. Well, he repented and God said, okay, you're not going to die, but I'll hold you to that fourfold thing. And he had to repay those fourfold sheep. The life and death of each of these was a reminder back to that very day, that very moment. Because when Nathan confronted him, everything he had done up to that point resonated with him and he realized what he had done, and it became real to him. When he thought it was somebody else, when he thought Nathan was informing him of somebody else, he was just all gung-ho about it. Oh, yeah, get him, get him. He's got to repent. Then Nathan said, well, you are the man. What I like about David here, and he always did this, he, he was quick to repentance. He was quick to acknowledge his own failures, his own sin, his own shortcomings. Um, you don't get a do-over. Rarely in life do we get do-overs. You may get a chance to make things right, but more often than not, the damage is done. And in often cases, it's, it's irreparable. From one sinful deed, four judgments were pronounced and carried out. Um, and I started off talking about those mechanics and that flight, 592 on that aircraft. Just to those, the actions of those three mechanics caused a ripple effect, through, not only through the lives of all those on board, and not only the lives of all those associated with them, their friends and their family, but also throughout the industry as a whole. It affected mechanics then and now. It affects what I do in my job now as a paper pusher. I have to do things now, make sure certain regulations are upheld because of what they did back then. So one last question and I'm done. Simple question. What lambs are you producing in your life? Oh. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for letting me remember to pray to close this out. But uh, I just thank you for the message, Lord. And I thank you, Lord. Uh, I just pray that it would be a help to someone. I love you and I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Brother Mike, come on, read the minutes. That's a great message.